and let's pray. Lord, will you speak to us this morning? Help us to know you better, know your character and your purposes, and help us to live for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. In February this year, a band came out to tour Australia called They Might Be Giants. uh, Some people have heard of them. They were formed in 1982. Basically, they're as old as me. Uh, And I think the last time that they came out here uh, was something like 15 years ago. And I've liked They Might Be Giants since I was a teenager. And a friend of mine organised for us to have tickets. But these weren't just ordinary tickets. These were backstage tickets to see They Might Be Giants. Down, I know, very exciting, down at the Metro Theatre. And so the 25 or so of us who've gathered for this international concert listened to this great... No, it was a bigger crowd than that. And uh, we listened to the concert, excellent concert, and the concert finished and the crowd uh, thinned out and then we went and met the band, John and John. And uh, as I remember it... Uh, Hi, John, I'm Ed. This is my friend Mike. Hi, John, Ed, Mike... Right, how long have you guys been in Sydney? A couple of days. Enjoying it? Yeah, it's pretty good. How long are you here? We leave tomorrow. Okay, nice to meet you. It was a very awkward kind of... uh, We were there amongst greatness and uh, we were meeting them up close and personal and we were somewhat starstruck. Uh, I wonder if you've ever had the experience of meeting someone great and how uh, you behaved in that situation. I had a similar interaction with Prince William once where I started rabbiting on about Australia invading England or something and very polite (laughs) but um, somewhat starstruck when a great one comes right in our midst how are we to relate to them well it's even uh, more important for us to think about when we think about how we relate to God when God comes close to us how are we to relate to God And that's what we're going to be thinking about this morning uh, as we dwell on that passage that we had read in our lectionary reading from Exodus chapter 27. Uh, If you've uh, been at college for a little while, you know my custom is always to preach on the lectionary readings or one of them. I look through them. I I think uh, that one, you know, Luke um, chapter 17, that looks a bit difficult. Oh, Psalm 90, that looks a bit difficult. Oh, Exodus 27, that's pretty straightforward. We'll stick with that one. And so that's what we're doing. We're there. I wonder if you've been anything like me as we've been reading through Exodus over the last semester. And uh, we've, it's been a great story, a ripping story. Pharaoh, it's the plagues and so on. The people leave, they grumble. We know the story so well. And then the last little while of last term, we've been sitting here talking about furniture and architecture of a tabernacle, and it goes on and on and on. If you've been anything like me, you're thinking, can we just skip forward a bit? It's so boring and tedious. Why has God put this in so much detail in his word? What's its point? Well, of course, the story of Exodus has been a story of salvation, salvation from slavery, uh, but a salvation to, to be God's people. And uh, as the people left Egypt in Exodus chapter 12 and 13 and they plundered the Egyptians, they left and immediately they began to grumble, didn't they? I was driving back on Saturday from Queensland and happened to be driving on the highway behind a bus, 
a Queensland logistics company called Exodus. And uh, their tagline was, Excellence Through Perseverance and Diligence. And I thought, Exodus, I think I might preach on Exodus. Is that what the people are like in Exodus? I couldn't have excellence through perseverance and diligence. Well, they've been anything but that, the complete opposite of that, haven't they? Uh, if anything, that's a tagline for the God of, ex- of Exodus, who's demonstrated his excellence through his perseverance and diligence with his chosen people. But they've grumbled, and as they've grumbled, they've put God to the test. And you might remember Exodus chapter 17, verse 7, where the people test God at Meribah, and, and they say, is the Lord with us or not? Is he going to be with us or not? And so we come to this section in Exodus chapter 25, basically to the end of the book. We've got 25 to 31. God has a long speech to Moses about how to build the tabernacle. Then you have the golden calf incident. And then from 35 onwards, Moses builds it just like God said to. And it begins in Exodus 25, verse 8, where God says, Have the people build for me a sanctuary and I will dwell with them. God will be with his people. Now, this is great news for them. Fantastic news. God is going to dwell with them in this portable, movable tent that will be his sanctuary. And so then uh, in verse 9 of chapter 25, he says, build it exactly as I show you. Now, why, why build it exactly as God has shown him? Well, of course, the way that we build things and the things that we do in them often has meaning. Mark's already talked about uh, the way that the reformers constructed the services and so on, the time of the Reformation. I'm somewhat interested in church architecture. My children, when we go on these road trips, have to you know, uh, endure detours as we look at old churches around the place. Um, and uh, Because, of course, churches themselves tell stories, the way that people have built them. You might notice this. Sometimes you go into a church, there's the font. Uh, if you go to old, and the reason is baptism, fonts by the door, baptisms the way, the way on, on your way in. And, uh, you know, in Italy you have whole baptistries like the Leaning Tower of Pisa. It's outside the door of the church. You, you get baptised before you go in. And then uh, the way you place your pulpit, uh, where you put your table, uh, all of these things are significant. Uh, the reformers knew that having... It wasn't as though they thought that if it, it doesn't matter where things are. It, just, it, it doesn't matter what's done. They knew that having a stone altar at the front with the priest with his back to the congregation meant something. So they knocked them down. They put, made them of wood. They brought them out from the wall. And, and they said, no, you, you're not supposed to lift the bread above your head anymore. And, and if anybody were to do that... I mean, in this chapel, if anybody did that, that would be the principal would be right to say to him on the way out, people have been fired for much less. Um, no, of course, they change those things because they have meaning and God has given a pattern for the tabernacle because it has meaning. And there's these two rooms, the Holy of Holies with the ark overlaid in gold. And then there's the holy place with its various pieces of furniture, a, a candlestick, a table for the bread, uh, an incense altar and so on. And these things showed the holiness of God, exactly what Mark drew our attention to. 
at the beginning of the service. The holiness, the majestic nature of God who was going to dwell with his people so far above us. And yet the glorious Lord was going to be manifested right there in their midst in this place. And it's a remarkable thing, isn't it? Because the tabernacle, of course, points forward. Points forward to a greater manifestation of God's glory. And we read in John chapter 1, verse 14, the word became flesh and eskenosen, I think that's right, tabernacled among us. And we have beheld his glory, the glory of the one and only from the Father, full of grace and truth. When Jesus came, the glory of God was manifest as he tabernacled among us, the holiness of God. And then as we come to our passage in chapter 27, the first thing that we see is the altar. So the ark has gold on it, the altar made of bronze. We're moving our way out. Five cubits high, five, uh, five cubits long, five cubits wide, three cubits high. A cubit's basically the measure from the elbow to the fingertip. So um, if Andrew Boots were building the tabernacle, it would be a bit bigger than the rest of us. But uh, basically this is the largest piece of furniture... Uh, in the tabernacle. And it's there outside the holy place. And then we got the description of the outer walls, 100 cubits by 50 cubits, and an entrance on the east end, 20 cubits wide. But the, the point is that as you come in that east end, the first thing you see is the altar, uh, called the altar of bur- the burnt offering in Exodus 38, verse 1. Here, the altar. And as you see that, you're reminded that the holiness of God beyond it is only reached through sacrifice. You're reminded of the awfulness of your sin, the terribleness, the the, uh, disenfranchisement that that brings, the alienation. And so you have this altar, which is uh, basically a large square barbecue. We've got the grill on the top. Uh, with rings on the side and poles, the original kind of movable Weber, if you like, uh, that could be moved along and completely portable and sacrifices would be offered there. And as you came into the temple, that's what you'd be reminded of, your sinfulness, your sinfulness before God. And maybe you're here this morning and you think, I don't actually need (laughs) reminding of my sinfulness I know very well that I'm a sinner. My sin is always before me. I carry the guilt around. Well, the altar says to you, access to God is possible through sacrifice. You can engage with the holy God because of sacrifice. But perhaps... You're a bit more like me and often you forget that you're a sinner. You think you're actually pretty good. You think that actually uh, you're, you know, you're the, the goods. And the altar stands there to remind you, no, you have fallen short, fallen short of the glory of God and the only way that you can come to him is through sacrifice. Well, of course, the tabernacle is built way back then in the Old Testament, to put a tabernacle-shaped 
hole in our brain, a category in our brain, so that when Jesus came, we would know the fulfilment that he brought and exactly what it meant. And of course, the author of Hebrews picks this up in chapter chapters 8 through 10, and he talks about the fact that that tabernacle was built, it was, it was always just a copy and a shadow of the real tabernacle, which is in heaven. And Jesus is the one who goes into that tabernacle. And just like there needed to be sacrifice in order for the people to do business with God and him to, to engage with him as he dwelt amongst them, so now Jesus has done the business, not over and over and over, uh, as those sacrifices need to be ma- needed to be made on that altar that we read about in Exodus 27, but once and for all, the blood has been shed. The body has been broken once and for all. And now we have access to God because of what Jesus has done. It is wonderful, wonderful news. Liberating news. But one of the things, as I read through Exodus 27 and the uh, previous chapters, is, that's caught my attention has been these rings and these poles. The idea that the whole thing's movable. And I've thought to myself, wouldn't that be great if uh, the presence of God, God's dwelling place, was completely portable these days? Absolutely portable. You could pick pick it up and move it around. And my parents just got back last night from a three-week driving holiday through the middle of Australia where they were camping. Now, why would people in their late 70s want to camp in the middle of Australia? Kind of part of my mind thinks, what are you thinking? Another part of my mind kind of gets it. Every night you rock up, you've got your dwelling with you, exactly where you, you are. I know that there are some people here who love this kind of holiday. Um, we don't do it in our family, but I get that there, it's, it's a fun thing. Well, wouldn't it be great if the presence of God in this world was, was portable? Well, of course, the New Testament teaches that it, that it is because God dwells in his people through the Holy Spirit. He dwells in his people through the Holy Spirit. And so as we believe and trust in Jesus, when Jesus returned, he sent the Holy Spirit so that God would dwell in us. It's remarkable. This tabernacle that was proposed back there in Exodus 25 to 31, we have right there in us through the Holy Spirit. It is a tremendous privilege. And yet at the same time, it's a great responsibility, isn't it? Because having God dwell in us is a very serious thing indeed. You might remember what happened to Aaron's sons, uh, Nadab and Abihu. Is that, I, I, anyway... Um, I haven't done an Old Testament exam for a while, but in Leviticus <laughs> chapter 10, and then they, they went into the tabernacle and they just d- did unauthorised things and God struck them down. Well, we have God dwelling in us. And Paul makes the point that because God dwells in us, we ought to live a particular way. We ought to relate to people in a particular way. Uh, he makes the point repeatedly in 1 Corinthians, doesn't he? Uh, in chapter 3, he's talking about divisions in the church. And uh, he says, 
Uh, don't, don't be divided over silly things. Do you not know that you are the temple? God's spirit lives in you. If you destroy the temple, then God will destroy you. Divisions between Christians. The people are where God resides. So we ought not to make a, a mockery of that in the way that we treat one another. Uh, you, I'm sure we'll know that today is 16th of July, a very significant day in church history. I know, you, okay, if I give you the year, 1054. Ah, of course, you've all been taught well, church history in this college. 1054, 16th of July, that was the day of the Great Schism. Where, no, none of you remember? <laughs> East and West divide. And on the 16th of July, over in Constantinople, Peter, the Archbishop of Amalfi, and you come, it's all coming back, right? <laughs> and, his, and his other papal legates, they go up to the, the, where the Lord's Supper has been set for the service at the uh, Hagia Sophia in Constantinople and they lay down the excommunication of the patriarch from the Pope. And all because of pride... And all because they were competing claims and rivalry. How wrong it was. How wrong it was. Paul says that divisions in the church. Do you not know that you are the temple? I'm not sure what things are like at your church. Whether you're one who's uh, bent on rivalry or involved in a disagreement. But remember that God dwells in his people. Do not destroy the temple. Now Paul goes on in chapter 6, you might remember, to, uh, chapter 6, verse 18, and he says, flee from sexual immorality. And he goes on, why? Because you are the temp- your body is a temple of God. Uh, and I don't know if, if that's a big factor for you when you are, are, are lingering on whether to sin or not. He says, flee because of who dwells in you. A Sunday week ago, I ran my very first marathon and run maybe is a, a little bit of a, an exaggeration of what I did, I, especially at the end. It was more of a shuffle. I was kind of walking along. Well, I was thinking I was jogging, but people were walking next to me at about the same pace. Um, <laughs> and I finished the race at the same time. I suffered the indignity of being so slow that I finished the race at the same time as a guy wearing a yellow tutu who'd run the whole thing backwards. Okay, and I think sometimes uh, we, when we when we start our Christian lives, we take seriously these claims, flee from sexual immorality, we run hard, but then as life goes on, we slow up, don't we? Sometimes we look back, like that guy in the yellow tutu. We look back, but Paul is saying you have the Spirit of God dwelling in you. Don't even dabble in it. Whether it's on the screen or in a personal relationship or something that you're looking at, flee from it. Flee from it. Because God dwells in you. And of course, this dwelling of God within us by the Holy Spirit that we have through faith in Jesus Christ right now, of course, this is just the beginning. Because... The trajectory of the Bible is that God's dwelling there in the tabernacle in Exodus and comes in Jesus Christ and then lives in his people, the church. But it's all pointing forward, of course, to Revelation, isn't it? 
And we think of Revelation chapter 21, verse 3, where a voice from the throne says, Behold, I will dwell with my people. I will be their God and they will be my people. And there will be no more mourning or crying or pain or death, for the old order of things has passed away. And so that's the great news, isn't it? That's the great news that we have as Christians. Sometimes people talk to me about heaven. They say, I'm so looking forward to heaven because then I'll be able to eat as much ice cream as I like and never get fat. And I think, really? That's what you're thinking about? Or maybe they've got uh, other ideas of heaven. Maybe they think, I'll be you know, reunited with my, uh, my brother who's died. That's a good thing about heaven. They think, oh, my sciatica in my leg will be gone. It'll be a thing of the past. That's a good thing about heaven. All those things are good things about heaven. I don't know about the ice cream. But all of those other things are good things about heaven, but they're not the heart of heaven. The heart of heaven is dwelling with God. Revelation 21, verse 22. There's no temple in the new Jerusalem. This God is in the midst of her. That's the great news. That's the great thing that we have to look forward to the personal dwelling of God with us. And so now we live, we live with the Holy Spirit in us. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, this is just as a mirror. And then what does he say? Tote dare, pros upon pros, pros upon. But then, face to face. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much that you have condescended to dwell with us. We thank you for the way that you instructed Moses to build that tabernacle. We thank you for what it teaches us about Jesus and what it teaches us about our eternal future. And Father, we just pray that you will help us to live our lives in light of this. In Jesus' name, amen.